0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
1: The Feast is brought to you by Studio Sweden, makers of premium headphones with studio quality sound. Now as a podcaster... Sound is pretty important to me. I spend at least an hour a day on the subway listening to podcasts. And you know what? Wires and subway turnstiles don't mix. After my last pair suffered an unfortunate end, I knew I had to change things up. And that's what makes Studio's headphones so amazing. They use Bluetooth technology, so there are no wires to get caught up in subway turnstiles, revolving doors, any of those hazards of urban life and their dedication to amazing sound and style means that I don't have to compromise in my new wire-free existence. Right now, Sudio is offering a special 15% discount for Feast listeners. Just go to their website at sudiosweden.com and enter the promo code FEAST17 at checkout. Don't let the subway claim another pair of headphones. Remember, The offer code is FEAST17 for a 15% discount at studiosweden.com. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson. I'm a food historian and writer, and I'm bringing you The Great Meals that made history. Take a moment and think about how many cookbooks you own. Now if you're like me, you might have entire bookshelves dedicated to cooking. But when I look over them all, which I had to do recently since we're moving house, even though they all contain recipes, they're all a little different. Some I own because they were written by famous chefs or even celebrities. A Julia Child cookbook here, a Michelle Rue, Jr. there. Then I have some reference books on how to make a very specific kind of food. Pastry, for example, or ramen. Then there are books dedicated to a whole type of cuisine, like Vietnamese or Mexican. Then there are a few books that focus solely on drinks, like classic cocktail books telling me how to make a corpse reviver, like the Savoy Hotel used to do in 1930. Me being me, I even have a few how-to-make-beer or how-to-make-cheese reference books, where I'm actually making a food product from scratch. Then there's the ever-growing collection of cooking magazines, sometimes decades old, kept because I love the glossy photos showing off Gourmet's 1996 Thanksgiving turkey or Cook's Illustrated's best leek and potato soup from 2004. My point is... Cookbooks are a pretty wide-ranging category, and we tend to own a bunch of these kinds of books, often for very different reasons. Because what cookbook can really claim to do it all? I might search three cookbooks for the best chicken soup recipe, and that's not even counting spending hours looking at recipes online. But what if you could purpose-build your own cookbook encyclopedia? One that included your family's favorite recipes, along with a spaghetti recipe Frank Sinatra made every Sunday for his son. Or how about Napoleon's no-fail roast chicken? An encyclopedia that had all the glossy pictures of your favorite high-end cooking magazine. Plus instructions on how to cook for your favorite holidays, what to make when you're camping, what to cook when you're sick with the flu, even what to make for vegetarian or gluten-free guests. No, I'm not selling you some new high-tech internet resource. To find such a comprehensive cooking encyclopedia, we actually have to travel back over a thousand years. To the very heart of the medieval Islamic empire. To a city known as the navel of the world. Baghdad. And where a man sits in a sprawling market calmly copying out recipes. The book this man is writing will eventually be called a number of titles, often known simply as the Book of Cooked Dishes. It will, at other times, have the slightly longer and more romantic title of Winning a Lover's Heart and Sparing Him the Need for a Doctor. Given that the final copy will have somewhere around 132 chapters, the man's been working on this book for some time. The Book of Cooked Dishes contains not only many recipes for meat, poultry, fish, and vegetables. It offers snack suggestions, bread recipes, juice and wine recipes, how to cook on an outdoor grill or a rotating spit, even how to use the famous tanur, a style of oven that was already thousands of years old by the 10th century. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. The first 30 chapters of this book alone are dedicated to utensils, basic ingredients, medicinal properties of food, and how best to exercise before a meal. The encyclopedia even gives etiquette advice how to properly wash your hands when dining, or how to eat with friends or dignitaries, and of course, finally, how to take a much needed postprandial nap. In all, The book contains over 600 different recipes, including dishes from famous leaders, generals, writers, physicians. The author may even have thrown in some of his own recipes for good measure. Writing such a sizable cookbook is unusual today, let alone during the Middle Ages. From an era where we have precious few sources, a book that lets us peer into the culinary world of medieval Islam is a rare find. But who was this man responsible for this gigantic cooking encyclopedia? And how do we even know about his work a thousand years after the fact? Well, we have one woman in particular to thank. Nawal Nasrallah, who recently edited and translated the work from Arabic into English. Known today as Annals of the Caliph's Kitchen, Ibn Sayyar al-Wawraq's 10th century Baghdadi cookbook, published in 2007.
0: I discovered it while uh, uh, doing my research for my first book, Delights from the Garden of Eden. Before I came to the United States, I uh, used to, to, to be a professor at the universities of Baghdad and then Mosul and then when i came here you know to the states in 1990 people started asking me for our dishes and for recipes or something so i looked around and i couldn't find any cookbooks on the iraqi cuisine so i decided to write one i thought why not you know write about you know about the history the culture besides the recipes because I personally do not like, like silent recipes without any introductions or anything, You know, just ingredients and methods. I would like to know something about it. So I said to myself, I'm going to write a book that I, I like to read, you know, I myself like to read. So that, that is how it started. So I started my research. I went to the uh, university library, it was Indiana University. And then I came across this volume which is uh, by Ibn Sayyar al-Warraq, which is, you know, which has beyond my expectations. I never thought that in my entire life I would, you know, uh, come across this book written about, you know, uh, a thousand years ago, you know, (laughs) in Baghdad, my city. So I was really thrilled.
1: Through her research, Nawal discovered some of the few remaining manuscripts of this 10th-century cookbook, written by a man we know today only by his profession, Al-Warak, the bookmaker. But even his name gave Nawal a few clues about the man as well as the literary culture behind this monumental culinary work. To understand a bit more, let's travel back to 10th-century Baghdad, to the time and place where this work was most likely written. By the 10th century, the city of Baghdad was the beating heart of the Islamic world. Located on the banks of the Tigris River, the very heart of ancient Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent, the city had been home to markets and merchants for thousands of years by the time of al Waraq, Chosen as the home of the royal family in the 8th century, The leaders of the growing Islamic empire, the Abbasid caliphs, ruled Egypt, most of North Africa, Spain, and the Arabian Peninsula from their palace in Baghdad. Al-Mansur, the caliph who had founded the city as the capital of his dynasty, had heaped money into the project, creating a giant, circular city. Four colossal gates, one at the south, east, north, and west sections of the city, allowed traffic to flow into Baghdad, each road leading to the very heart of the city where the royal precinct sat. Within was the inner world of the caliph, the palace and home for the royal family, space for the caliph's administrators and staff, barracks, offices, the royal mosque, and, of course, quite sizable kitchens. But outside this precinct, along the major roads, sat hundreds of little market stalls set up in the tall arcades that bordered these conduits of the city it was here where the money the wealth of the vast islamic empire its spices gold fruits vegetables and meats could be found merchants arrived by land river and sea some from as far away as what would today be indian china people called the city the mother of the world or the navel of nations. You could find anyone and anything in Baghdad. It was home to scientists, astronomers, poets, philosophers, historians, musicians, and of course, the best cooks around. But more than that, you could find books. Hundreds, if not thousands, of books. Baghdad in the 10th century is a book lover's paradise paper still unknown to most of europe where they're still running on animal skins is everywhere here with paper being cheap it means books are available to pretty much everyone a huge book market has sprung up in the very heart of the city where scribes offer their services to hand copy a book for any paying customer researchers and scholars gather at this book market Some treating it like their own personal library, using the resources around them to learn about science, art, math, and architecture, anything. It's here where you'll find ancient Greek philosophy, which has largely been lost from the libraries of Christian Europe by this point. You can find Euclid here, or Plato, even the medical theories of Galen, all among the books stacked here. Naturally, this is the market where you can find a bookmaker, and where we'll find Al-Warraq. He's hard at work, copying a very large cookbook for a very well-paying customer.
0: When we come to Al-Warraq, you know, he, he wrote an introduction to his book, and we understand that this book was commissioned. So, I mean, I mean only people, rich people would commission, would be would have the uh, the means to commission a cookbook. And it was, the, I mean, there was a special market called Souq al the, uh, the, the literally, the, either the book market or the paper market. This is the place where writers would go there and buy stationery. Also, they also served as uh, research libraries. Uh, they would go, they would rent a bookstore. They would stay in it and, uh, you know, read all those books and they get whatever they want from it. I mean, if they don't write them themselves, they, of course, there, there are compilations. And uh, Alwarraq's book is a compilation. I mean, he, he didn't write, it, write all these things himself. It's an anthology of what he found available at the time, because this is what he was commissioned to do. The commissioner, he said, this was in his introduction, he says, uh, I have written a book which makes uh, consulting any other book unnecessary because I have put everything here. And from the way he addresses the commissioner, we know that he was a, from the elitist social class, from a high social class.
1: Whoever this food-loving Baghdadi aristocrat was, he wasn't alone in his love of all things culinary. By all accounts, the Abbasids were dyed in the wool foodies. From the lowest peasant cooking over an open fire, to the caliph himself, occasionally ducking into the royal kitchens to whip up dinner for his friends and staff. Caliphs were known to write poetry dedicated to their favorite foods, even arranging cooking contests. Some members of the royal family were infamous for their food habits. One royal grandson was apparently so known for his love of eggplant, he was known as al-Akul, or in English, the glutton thanks to his tendency of eating 40 cooked eggplants at a time
0: in this kind of indulgence you know like in, you know sensual pleasures like which one of them is eating they were permissible in islam so there was uh, uh, they felt free to, uh, to deal with these things So uh, some of them, of course, uh, they had books written in their names. One of the books, for example, there are recipes for the caliph so that he he follows it throughout the year, you know, with the change of seasons, for example. Uh, But we also know that they did themselves write cookbooks, like uh, uh, Ibrahim bin al-Mahdi. He is the half-brother of uh, uh, the famous caliph Harun al-Rashid of the Arabian Nights. He he really wrote a cook, cookbook, which which must have been very famous because it was quoted even by the by the Andalusian cookbook. So it was known throughout the Islamic world. Even caliphs themselves, for example, uh, gather a group of poets around them and they would ask them to uh, recite uh, poems about food. After the poet would recite, for example, a poem about uh, asparagus, the caliph would say, let us cook this dish you have just described.
1: And it wasn't just the caliphs who were interested in poems to go with their meals. Al-Wadak's cookbook is full of short poems to the dishes he includes, often by famous poets connected to the royal court. One famous example included in al Waraq's book is the story known as the fish that cost a thousand dinars. Now, the dinar was a common coin used in the Islamic empire in the 10th century. Now, as the story goes, Ibrahim bim al-Mahdi, the son of an Abbasid caliph and a well-known court poet, had quite the taste for not just fish, but fish tongues. Ibrahim decided to show a little brotherly love and ordered a specific dish for his brother that included no fewer than 150 fish tongues preserved in aspic, a kind of meat jelly. Now, when Ibrahim's brother was presented with the dish, he was outraged with how much his brother had spent on the thing. Apparently, fish tongues were quite the luxury, I mean, I guess it's understandable. They are rather small. Now, it's not clear how Ibrahim took his brother's refusal, but it didn't prevent him from writing a poem dedicated entirely to his favorite fish, which Al-Warak helpfully includes following the recipe for the infamous 1,000 dinar fish-tongue dish. Ibrahim's poem reads, I have Kari's dish of buni fish." which our cook perfected and brought to us chilled. Like ruby on the platter, set in a pearl. Nay better, like wine frozen in glass. Steeped in saffron thus, like garnet it looks, vibrantly red, shimmering on silver. So much so, the cook of vinegar added, that to your fill you cannot possibly have it. Nothing compares with it dyed with saffron, Set and thickened like cabbies. So well arrayed is the fish in this lucid sauce, you may count it bit by bit. We're all Tonight on NBC... Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor... We'll break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on
0: NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories, because it tastes so good.
1: A monk in seclusion, but catch a glimpse of it. He would around it seven times go, and in adoration prostrate fall for it. Bliss is having one fill of this dish, my friends, and pangs of famine vanish. It is my favorite summer fish, and nothing contents me more than seeing it all vanish. Why not try that one out the next time you order fish and chips? But as we'll find out, these odes to a trout may have more in common with modern eating trends than you might first suspect. Today's episode of The Feast is brought to you by Studio Sweden, who may be the only headphone company to be named after a Phil Collins song. It all started when the company's founder saw Mr. Collins struggling with his headphones one day in New York City. After a little Scandinavian know-how and some sleek, minimalist design, Studio headphones were born. And right now, Studio is offering a special 15% discount for Feast listeners. Just go to their website, studioSweden.com, and enter the promo code FEAST17 at checkout. They'll arrive within days straight to your door, so you could be listening to Phil Collins in crystal clear quality in one week. Remember, it's feast seventeen at studiosweden.com. OK, so let's get back to this ruby and pearl fish dish. I know, the language may sound a bit over the top but think about how much we in the 21st century obsess about the beauty of our food. Most of us may not write poems about our hamburgers or our breakfast smoothies, but think about all the millions of food photos that show up daily on Instagram, perfectly framed using those soft, lighted Kevin or Walden filters where thousands of charcoal ice creams pop up in your feed daily. Or maybe that's just my feed, I don't know. Now, if that isn't just a new form of visual food poetry, I don't know what is. So a thousand years before today's smartphones, when food-obsessed Baghdadis couldn't take photos of their food, what was the next best thing in order to tell their friends about just how delicious and beautiful their last meal was? Poetry. With the most famous, or well-written, poems ending up in Al-Warraq's cookbook. Think of it as if a cookbook could include Anthony Bourdain's Instagram feed of the best barbecue or photos of David Chang's perfect ramen.
0: But when we come to the uh, poems, they were the equivalent of the pictures, photos, food photos we have nowadays. Because, you know, we come across, for example, a recipe... After that, you have a poem in which the poet describes how to make this recipe, but in a poetic, in, in poetry, in verse. Here, this is unusual. We have an unusual number of uh, of, of poetry. He didn't write them himself. As I said, he also uh, collected them from from books. So the tradition for writing uh, food, uh, you know, gastronomic poetry, it was there. It was been, I mean, people liked it, and it was popular. It was a popular genre, even before the, uh, this book was written. Not only poets, you know, professional poets, but uh, even caliphs, you know, uh, princes, you know, they all participated in this, you know, artistic presentation of food.
1: But for all the royal cooks or over-the-top poems we can find in al book, it isn't all about haute cuisine. al also made sure to include basic dishes, Things you might be able to find in anyone's home, and while we may not be making many fish tongue dishes anymore, some of his recipes sound quite familiar to not just modern Iraqi cooks, but
0: even Scottish
1: ones as well.
0: Uh, for example, we, you know, the Scotch eggs. First of all, they spread a lavash bread, a big one, and they, yeah, and they cover it with a with a layer of ground meat, spicy ground meat with the spices and all that, bound with the, with eggs, you know, raw eggs. So they, they spread this layer they arrange eggs it depends on the uh, you know on the size of the lavash so they put for example like uh, in the middle they put like seven eggs or something and they wrap it all around the uh, you know all around the egg and they grill it and when it is done they they slice it slice it into pieces so But we also come across, you know, like basic dishes. So it's not, they do not write cookbooks only for including uh, unique dishes. I think their their aim is to document, you know, a whole cuisine presented. And, uh, you know, like we have here, all courses, make things available for people, you know.
1: Beyond some interesting similarities to modern Scottish cuisine, there are some Iraqi foods that have been made more or less consistently for the last 1,000 years or more. Consider lavash bread, an unleavened wheat bread, perhaps one of the most popular throughout Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. Actually, lavash is considered so iconic in many of these countries that it's made the list of UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. So, you know, it's kind of a big bready deal. Anyway, as Nawal says,
0: there are recipes that, you know, um, resemble what is being uh, uh, baked today. But what's funny is that in in medieval times, lawash bread was the epitome of, you know, civilization, of sophistication. And uh, I always <laughs> tell my students, you know, when I tell them, you know, when I talk about the medieval era, I tell them the story of a Bedouin because there's, you know there's always this friction between the the city slickers and the Bedouins, even from you know, medieval times. The Bedouin was telling when he went back, you know, he said he was invited to a wedding in in a city. He went there and he sat. They were all getting ready for the for the feast, and the certain servers. Uh, passed around certain folded uh, uh, sheets of, uh, of a cloth. He said, I looked at this cloth. I liked it so much. I wanted to make a shirt with it. So as I was asking people around me to give me their pieces so, so, so that you know I have enough for making a shirt, they started breaking it to pieces and eating it. <laughs> so that was lavash bread. They used to fold it, you know, and they offered it for, you know, for, for, for feasts, for weddings. And they pass it, you know, around to people or they arrange it all around the, um, the dishes, you know. And, and, you know, this, is, this I found uh, interesting because nowadays we tend to uh, associate lavash bread with peasant cooking. But at the time, it was really like a sophisticated kind of bread.
1: But beyond recipes, a great deal of Al cookbook might be described more as a lifestyle guide. What foods to best eat to stay healthy, how to entertain visiting guests, even how to wash your hands before and after a meal. Think of it like Emily Post crossed with Martha Stewart, with a clean-eating guru thrown in for good measure. Al-Warak's Guide to Good Eating, and actually much of Islamic medicine at the time, was based on the theories of Galen, a Greek physician who lived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries C.E., now he theorized that the body was made up of four distinct substances or humors as they were known. These were things like blood and phlegm and even two kinds of bile. Now if we simplify the theory down, when those humors were in balance, you were healthy. When they weren't, if the humors were out of alignment, well it was the cause for whatever you were suffering from. Humors out of balance or out of whack could be the cause for anything from the common cold to just general sadness. Galen theorized that you could fix most medical problems by restoring the balance to your body's humors. While letting out an excess of one kind of humor was the solution to many of these problems, according to Galen, and this is where we get the whole practice of bloodletting, consuming foods that had the same qualities as some of the humors could help with particular ailments or diseases. So, for al-warak, lettuce, for example, could help soothe the stomach, while radishes gave you energy. Spinach was, for example, considered good for the throat, while turnips apparently helped your kidneys. Books of Galen's theories were among the most popular throughout the medieval world, and were used even into the 19th century.
0: Food to them at the time was a source of enjoyment but also a source of uh, maintaining one's health for curing certain maladies i'm not talking about serious sicknesses you know like uh, like having a cold a cough or something you know those maladies you know simple things the first 30 chapters or so there are no recipes and when i first opened this book you know the first time i wasn't aware even of the uh, of the galenic theory i was surprised what kind of book is this what are the recipes
1: Almost a full third of Al-Warak's book is devoted to how to eat according to Galenic theory, describing which foods correspond to which bodily humor. But even with 30 chapters devoted to healthy eating, this makes up only one part of his instructional program on food. He also spends over 10 chapters talking about dining etiquette. Now, dinner parties in 10th century Baghdad were largely, let's consider it family-style, with numerous people sharing the same bowl or eating from the same platter. Utensils, per se, weren't really used. Meals were largely eaten using your fingers. Diners, accordingly, were expected to come to a meal with clean hands, and Al-Waraq makes sure his readers know just how important this is when dining out with family, friends, or more importantly, your boss.
0: And of course, this necessitated certain food etiquette. I mean, uh, when you share, literally, you know, it's a you know literally share a dish with with others. Of course, you have to pay pay attention to to certain uh, you know etiquettes and uh, things. That's why we have uh, those two important cha- two or three chapters on uh, the etiquette of sharing a meal with others. For example, of course, washing the hands is essential because they are using you know their hands. So. Uh, and he, there are recipes for certain uh, uh, prepar- uh, hand-washing preparations. Um, so they have to use them, they have to rinse their hands. And after they wash the hands, they shouldn't t- touch anything else after that. If they touch their hair, they have to go back and, uh, <laughs> and wash their hands. So uh, when they eat, after they are done, of course, they have to wash their hands once again because they will get all greasy. And after they wash their hands, they have to uh, anoint their hands with the perfumed oils, with rose water, with all these things so that they smell nice.
1: And what about hosting a meal? Now, if you've ever thrown a dinner party, you know it can be a challenge to figure out how to let people know when they can start eating. And maybe even more importantly, when they need to clear out and let you get some sleep at the end of the night. Yet again, Alwarak has got you covered.
0: So there is a, you know, the one I like in particular is um, dealing with the, with the tradition of starting the meal by saying uh, Bismillah in the name of God. That's the tradition. If you start the meal, if you, are, if you want to invite your friends, you say, you say Bismillah. When you are done, you have to say Alhamdulillah, which is you, you thank God for, for the meal. So uh, there is a story about a, a stingy host who used to uh, discourage his, uh, his guests you know he's a host he's not supposed to do this but in the middle of the meal he would stop and say alhamdulillah all people have to stop eating (laughs) so one day a a poet a famous poet he was invited to the to to, to have dinner with this person so they were eating so all of a sudden the the host said alhamdulillah they haven't finished so people have to stop but before leaving this uh, this poet he wrote him he jotted down a few lines and he said thanking god is a good thing at all times, but not at the beginning of a meal. You will thus embarrass your guests as if bidding them to hasten with the meal. You will bid your still hungry guests farewell, which is not the way the generous deal." (laughs) He he jotted those lines and he left angrily hungry.
1: (laughs) So from how to get rid of unwanted guests, the best poetry to celebrate your mom's fish and chips. Alwadok's book is the comprehensive guide to all things food. But how does it stand up as a recipe book in the 21st century? Now, I understand that fish tongue recipes may not be everyone's cup of tea, but many of the recipes in Wadok's book are just as tasty today as they were in the 10th century. This week, Mike and I made a delicious chicken stew and a cold carrot salad from his book. And apart from a few ingredient swaps, because apparently no one sells roux anymore. Seriously, where is all the roux? We were able to make them more or less as Alwarak wrote them a thousand years ago, thanks to Nawal's excellent English translation. And how often do you get to say that you've made a thousand-year-old recipe, and more than that, you enjoyed it? We'll put up a few choice recipes on the website, but if you want the comprehensive cookbook, you can buy Nawal's English translation of Al-Warak's book, courtesy of Brill Publishers. You can also buy her other books on the history of Iraqi cooking, including Delights from the Garden of Eden. She's also currently at work on a cookbook featuring the history of Egyptian cuisine. Look for it on bookshelves starting in late fall 2017. Although we may never know the identity of the mysterious patron who commissioned Al-Warraq to write this monumental cookbook, thankfully his efforts weren't lost to history. More than 200 years after Al-Warraq's death, manuscripts of his work could still be found in the homes of gastronomes throughout the Middle East. An Ayyubid king of Egypt even owned a copy in the 13th century, where the title page proudly referred to Al-Warraq as Learned and Most Excellent. But more than the book itself, so many of the recipes al-Warraq faithfully copied down in that paper market in medieval Baghdad would prove to be the most enduring, some lasting over a thousand years, tracing their way from the 10th to the 21st century. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who found himself way more into medieval Islamic stews than he was expecting. I'm now getting calls to make things with dried buttermilk on a regular basis. If you want to know what I mean, check out the recipes we made from Al-Warak's book on the show notes, available at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And a huge thanks to Nawal Nasrallah, for taking the time to talk to us about her fantastic research. I loved reading this book, and I can't wait to get my hands on her upcoming book on Egyptian cuisine. Music today by Turku, Nomads of the Silk Road. And for those of you subscribed, you'll know that we just sent out our end-of-summer newsletter, featuring some of the great things we've been up to since launching Season 2. We also have a survey running about what areas of the world you'd like The Feast to visit in upcoming episodes. Didn't get the newsletter? Why not subscribe? It's easy, free, and it'll just take two seconds. Just head on over to thefeastpodcast.org and select subscribe to our newsletter. It's that easy. It'll make sure you never miss an episode, any of our great news, or upcoming listener giveaways. And one more quick note before we go you may have noticed that we're part of the brand new Podglomerate Network. It's full of great shows, each one designed to make you think. Whether it's interviews with internationally acclaimed authors, like on Writers Who Don't Write, or investigating the role of immigration in the modern world, like on Status, you're bound to be fascinated and captivated by the stories these podcasts tell. Check them out today at thepodglomerate.com. And that's all for us this week. Join us again in two weeks' time when we talk to the soul food scholar himself, Adrian Miller, author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, an amazing look at the role of African American chefs at the White House since the Revolutionary War. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Sonic Universe Tonight on NBC Well everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands thank you You're all fired Based on an inspiring true story Any department who places billing above care you will be terminated One doctor will break every rule Just tell me what you need what
0: your patients need
1: to inspire a revolution
0: Let's get into some trouble Let's be doctors Again Here the-
1: From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.